Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. I'm Mark Locks, the host, and today I'm very pleased to have uh, Mark Mazzetti on the line from Washington, D.C., and we're going to talk about his new book, uh, The Way of the Knife. And this um, book actually came out, I believe, last year. Is that correct, Mark? That's right. It was in the, the spring of 2013. 2013, yes. I actually read it. I grabbed it at an airport um, and saw it as a normal airport book and read it and was very impressed and thought I'd have to get you online. It's taken a while to get you. Um, it, I actually bought it last November on the way to America, but uh, I was very, very uh, impressed with the book and it was certainly uh, a, a topic that I thought I knew something about and it turned out I didn't. But uh, thank you very much for participating today, Mark. Sure. Thanks for having me on. That's all right. Um, we'll start off, uh, as I said in the pre-interview, with a, a bit of a background to you and how you came to write this book. And I have to note for the listeners that uh, you are a Pulitzer Prize winner, the very first one I've ever spoken to. <laughs> well, I'm sure it won't be the last. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> so um, what, right. how did you come I, um, to, what, what's your background and how did you come to write this particular book? So I've been um, covering national security issues uh, since since 2001, actually, about since about six months before the September 11th attacks and um, covering it from different sides. I was covering the military in the Pentagon for about five years. Um, and then for the New York Times, starting in 2006, focused more on intelligence, um, the intelligence community more, and more specifically the CIA. And um, what I really became to be interested in, I mean, I covered the war in Afghanistan and I, I went there and I covered Iraq and I went there. Um, but really what interested me most was um, what I call the shadow war, which is the war outside of the declared war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I sort of came to think that so much of the history of this post 9-11 period um, actually happened uh, outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. So what I set out to do is to try to tell as much of a history as can be told now about what happened uh, outside of Iraq and Afghanistan in the shadow war and and how it came to sort of become a model for how war will be waged in the future. Yeah. Uh, now, the book itself actually has, I would call them two protagonists, one being the CIA and the other being the, the more mainstream military. And um, the surprise that I found in reading the book was that the classic movie version of the CIA didn't appear to have existed. And if anything, your book is more or less presenting the modern military as taking on the role of the, uh, the stylized or, or mythical version of the CIA. Would that be a quick summary of, yeah. I mean, that's a good way to look at it. The, the real shorthand version that I use is that, you know, in the last 12 years, the CIA has come to look a lot more like the military and the military has come to look a lot more like the CIA. Yeah. And, and, and what I mean by that is this. When you say the sort of Hollywood stylized version, people think of the CIA as, you know, Jason Bourne um, assassins. And really that – 
if that ever existed, it didn't exist for, for decades. And, and what I try to do is go back to the history, through the history of the CIA to sort of chart its various um, uh, phases. And the, the period from the 1970s, when the, for those who, um, your listeners who, who aren't aware of the history, you know, of the Church Committee, which was a, a, a Senate investigation of CIA activities. In the 1970s, the CIA, all of their sort of dirty laundry of the early decades of, it, of its existence was aired out. And from the 1970s, um, from when President Ford signed a ban on assassinations, the uh, until 9-11, the CIA was kind of out of the killing business. Um, they... Um, they really didn't have the authority to go out and just, you know, kill America's enemies around the world. And so, um, and that really shaped the CIA as an organization. Um, and then post 9 11, um, has been this dramatic transformation into this manhunting paramilitary organization. On the flip side, if you look at the military and the Pentagon, um, when I say they become more like the CIA, you've seen this dramatic expansion of the C- of the military in the last 12 years into places where soldiers didn't used to go, into places like Pakistan, places in Africa, places that weren't declared war zones, and in many ways still aren't. But they have been sent there because the, the Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary at the time, said, this is a global war, and I'm the commander of war, and I need to send my soldiers where the war, war is. Right. So let's get a picture then of what the modern CIA is doing. Um, since it's not this this Hollywood version, what does the CIA do? What's its role? And how, what role specifically does it play in the post-9-11 world? Well, I think it's probably, you know, a little bit closer to the Hollywood stylized version than it, than it certainly was on 9-11 in the sense that the CIA now has this lethal authority to go around the world and kill people. Now, what does that usually mean? It it, it mostly um, manifests in, um, in in attacks by armed drones where you have the um, uh, in Pakistan and Yemen or parts of Africa, the CIA um, targeting targeting people and killing them. Um, that is um, you know this extraordinary development that's happened in the last you know decade where the CIA goes out and does it so often that it's become very routine. Um, but you know, it, 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 it really matters to go back and look at the history because I spent a chapter in the book tracing the arc of the armed predator and how the CIA came to finally adopt the predator. And this wasn't really an easy call. Um, in the months before the September 11th attacks, the CIA was debating whether they should, you know, go take the armed predator and kill Osama bin Laden. But there was a big fight over it because they didn't want to get back into the assassination business. As I said, they'd gotten out of that business in the 70s. So then they, 9-11 happens and they, you know, go back with this legal authority, you know, some of those debates they had months earlier, um, you know, seemed kind of quaint. But now they do it so routinely that it's it's easy to forget that this is a big step for the agency. Mm, that's right. So, um, how broad is their operation? So, are they running the drone program uh, just across the Middle East or uh, anywhere else in the world? 
Well, it, 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 it's, a, it's a good question because it is sort of country specific. And sometimes as, it, sometimes as a reporter, it's hard to figure out who's running what. And this gets to this old issue we discussed earlier about the blurring of the lines between the CIA and the Pentagon. So right now, the CIA runs the drone program in Pakistan. That's the kind of longest standing drone war. It was started in 2004. Um, it wasn't the Pakistan wasn't the first drone strike outside of a, de, a declared war zone that, that that happened in in Yemen in 2002. But by far the real laboratory for the drone war has been in Pakistan, and the CIA still runs that. In other countries, though, the Pentagon runs it. Not only in Afghanistan, but in Somalia, the Pentagon is in charge of that. In Yemen, and this is kind of the most interesting case in Yemen, you have two parallel drone wars being run. You have the CIA drone war and you have the military drone war. They both take strikes and it's very hard as an outsider to know kind of who does what and why. And we're still trying to sort through these things. Last May, President Obama gave a big speech about how he was going to be more transparent about drone operations. But, you know, that's still yet to come. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people refer to this drone strikes as the extrajudicial killings. And what is this process that, that um, either the CIA or the military goes through when they make a decision that they're going to do a drone strike? And, and are there two very, very distinct processes they have to go through? It's a good question that um, we're still trying to, to get all the details about. I mean, certainly the CIA has been doing this longer than the military has, it, it, which is it sounds kind of strange, but the CIA has been doing this, you know, intelligence gathering and trigger pulling with armed predators for really longer than the, than the military has. So the CIA has a system developed where, you know, first of all, they have to get the intelligence. And, you know, so much is focused on the actual trigger pulling, the actual armed drone strike. But that's really um, maybe only one or two percent of it, right? Most of what goes into a drone strike is the intelligence gathering leading up to that strike and then the decision making about whether to take the shot. So first of all, it's a question of do you have any intelligence on the ground to feed into these drone strikes? And then once you have a pretty good sense of who the person is that you want to go after and you know where they are, then the decision has to be made, do you take the shot? And one of the interesting things about the, the history of the drone program over the last 10 years, if you just look in Pakistan, um, and it's really just been a decade, it was June 2004 was the first drone strike in Pakistan, was that the strikes were in the first few years were very infrequent and they were very inaccurate. Um, they took shots maybe three or four a year, if, if that. And very often they missed. And that was not a technology issue, really. It was mostly an intelligence issue. They had very bad intelligence about where people were. And so they killed civilians and they, um, they sometimes were aiming at the right person, but their intelligence was maybe two or three hours behind. And so that led to some of these botched drone strikes. Right. Um, let's take a step back then and, and, and go back to the military side. How did the military end up carrying out these sort of operations and what drove them to do it? So if we backed up to, um, you know, the, the birth of the, of the, of the armed predator, um, the, the CIA had used the predator in the nineties um, in the Balkans and um then it was, but it was effectively run by the military. It was an air force operation. And, um, 
when the uh, birth of the armed predator, when, when they actually put a missile on it, they, the Air Force did it, as I recount in the book, there was a lot of testing in the, de- in the deserts of Nevada and California, but they were mostly doing it for the CIA, and so the CIA took over this, this operation, and first in Afghanistan, and then Yemen and Pakistan, but the military realized early on that they could use this quite effectively in the, you know, overt declared wars that it was waging, Afghanistan and Iraq. So the military um, has used this extensively um, in Iraq and Afghanistan more than, you know, overall more than the, than the, than the CIA has. We, we pay attention to the CIA um, doing it because it's done in places that are in declared war zones, right? So Pakistan and, you know, other places. But, you know, the military, you know, in the height of the Iraq war was doing drone strikes in Iraq all the time. Um, so, so these are, and, it, and it's just like any kind of weapon. Instead of using a jet fighter to drop bombs, the Air Force uses um, an armed drone. And so that is um, something that I think sometimes gets lost because the you know the media doesn't cover it because it's just. Um, and from my own point of view, I, I'm le- I'm more interested in the in the sort of authorities um, that that lead someone to do these operations than the actual technology itself because I think in many ways an armed drone is no different than a rifle or a you know a um, a jet fighter. Yeah. Yep. And who? And no, sorry, you know, you're right. Go. And, and so, and so that's where, you know, uh, but, 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 but I think we're in a, we're, we're in an age where, where, you know, that's going to change where, um, more and more countries are, 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 um, developing the technology. And so they're going to start using them by the same authorities that the United States has for, for some time. And, and that's where it's going to get interesting, right? When the, when the Russians decide to use a drone, Outside of its, you know, outside of their borders, um, against terrorist suspects who they say they're killing in self-defense. I mean, that's the same justification the United States has been using, and and that's when it's going to become very sort of dicey for the United States to make a case against that. Yeah. Um, so, who are the people who are being killed by the drones? So, we, we basically talked about one: the military using it as a, as a military tool, as you say, just as any other weapon. Uh, is there a differentiation of the type of targets that the CIA are attacking? Are they choosing more political rather than military targets? Um, they are. They have to take um, to target individuals who are sort of broadly part of, um, of 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 militant groups, either you know bent on attacking the United States or America's allies, or. Uh, attacking American troops in Afghanistan. No, so that's a pretty broad definition. Um, and so they don't necessarily have to go after al-Qaeda or someone who is trying to attack the United States. Uh, they can do strikes against groups in Pakistan who might be plotting attacks against American troops in Afghanistan. And that's where the bar got lowered to some degree. And um, you have what are called signature strikes, which are strikes where the CIA doesn't even have to know specifically the the identity or identities of the people they're going after. Uh, there's there's something called personality strikes, which are the, you know we know um, this specific person, we know where, where he is, we know he's a Al Qaeda leader, and we're going to kill him. Uh, signature strikes are are broader and. Um, you know, there's a lower standard to meet. There's a group of people in Pakistan that we believe are be, 
being um, trained to go over the border to attack American troops in Afghanistan. We don't know exactly who they are, but intelligence suggests that they are going to launch an attack. So therefore, um, we have the authority, we being the CIA, have the authority to go kill them. Now, those are more controversial because, again, the threshold is lower. Um, they don't even exactly know who they're killing. And there's also been instances where there's been, you know, a lot of civilians killed in these signature strikes because um, the, the intelligence has been bad. They think that there's a group of people massing to carry out an attack and it's ended up being in a tribal uh, meeting in Pakistan. So, um, you know, in some ways that, that's a more controversial call. But Obama last year in his speech said at least as long as, long as American troops are in Afghanistan, he's going to allow these kind of strikes in Pakistan. Yeah, I've seen stories on CNN about, um, uh, well, claims that American strikes are being carried out on behalf of the Pakistan Intelligence Service or the Pakistan Army as well. So, like, complementary strikes will give you permission to have strikes in, inside Pakistan if you also add some of our targets onto your list. Yeah, um, the, the shorthand um, uh, sort of jar- jargon is uh, goodwill kills, that you, uh, you, 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 you have two allies who don't trust each other, but you build, build up goodwill by killing each other's enemies. And if you look back, as, as I do in the, in the book, in the, the first drone strike in Pakistan, in many ways, was such a goodwill kill. There was a guy named Nek Mohammed who was a tribal leader who had raised an insurgency in Pakistan really going after Pakistani troops. He wasn't a senior al-Qaeda leader, but he kept defeating Musharraf's government troops in Pakistan. And, and Musharraf got so angry um, that this guy kept you know, making ceasefires and then breaking them and really humiliating Pakistani troops that he gave the authority to the CIA to go kill him. And that was, um, that was the beginning, and that was kind of what set this um, – very strange and in some ways cynical history in in motion where um, from the very beginning, the CIA had the authority to do these strikes, but all along both sides denied that they were doing it. And, you know, I do think that there's a great deal of, um, of, of anger towards drone strikes, not only in Pakistan, but within the Pakistani government, but at the same time, um, you know, the Pakistani government, if they had wanted to, could have shut this program down, and they haven't. Right, right. It's a strange uh, uh, mechanism, too, because obviously it gives you a great deal of um, opportunities you couldn't ever otherwise had. Uh, do you think they would have carried out these same sorts of strikes had they involved flying um, piloted planes across into Pakistan? No, I, I mean that's a great question because because in many ways the technology um, allows you to um, do things you never would have risked doing before, and in, I guess it's seductive in a way where the, the easier it becomes to do something, the more often you do it. Um, but but right, I mean the, the government of Pakistan from the get go always said you know we won't allow American troops in Pakistan and. As I recount in the book, that line has been pushed on several occasions. Most notably was the Bin Laden raid, but um, this was a way around that. It was a way to, um, you know, kill uh, America's enemies and get away with saying we're not going to put the military in there. And if um, if if there was a, a drone shot down, you wouldn't lose a pilot, and so there's lower there's low risk. Yeah. So I see some similarities to the the whole war in the Balkans in the 90s, 
where people preferred bombing over um, putting troops on the ground because of all the problems that that involved. And then this raises it up, as you say, to another level of, of um, political security again, where there are no body bags at all. It, it's risking mechanisms and, and robots rather than human beings. Yeah, and 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 I think that so so this is just extending it a little bit a little bit further. I mean, I, again, I think it's I think we should always be careful to say, you know, what's revolutionary here? I mean, it's not revolutionary that there are weapons that go long distances without people involved, right? There's tomahawk, there's cruise missiles, there's strikes where you can strike from afar without risking anything. I think what's interesting and most important about this period of time is the um, the the sort of determinations that this war would be around the world and the United States can be justified in going to, into any one of these countries, not just to, with a one-off strike, but to send drones in and, and, and take strikes if they need to. And, and that sort of set, I think, the model for how things are going to go in the future when, you know, it's not just the United States doing it. No. So when the military have access, or as they do, I should say, to these, this uh, mechanism, do they now have targets that they otherwise would not have um, attacked? So did they actually use this as an opportunity to carry out uh, broader strategies that they otherwise wouldn't? And, and even do they actually contact the CIA and say, you know, given your range of powers in your jurisdiction, could you help us out by, for example, taking out a particular person? Yeah, I mean, and, and there, there is there is that back and forth. So, for instance, the military still, you know, as I said, they've got their own drone program in Afghanistan, but they're still very hesitant to go over the border into Pakistan because of the legal justifications. And so they would, in that case, tell the CIA and there's, there was close coordination in that camp and that, you know, the tribal areas of Pakistan, um, which the military is very concerned about because there have been guys going over the border into Afghanistan, killing American troops, but the CIA runs that war. So there's a lot of back and forth there. Um, you asked earlier about, you know, how is it different the way the CIA does it, the military does it. Um, it's still an open question to me. For instance, you know, when I said that there is a drone program in the, run by the military in Yemen and there's a drone program run by the CIA in Yemen, what's very strange is that the CIA, the program, the drone strikes by the military in Yemen seem to be, go bad a lot more than the CIA do. The ones do. There are more civilian casualties. There's botched operations. And you know, on one hand, you'd say, well, it, aren't they all sharing the same intelligence and aren't they basically the same weapons? But actually, as I dig into it, you learn it's not. They still hoard intelligence. They hoard sources. Um, see, I, I think the, the Pentagon takes shots um, based on less information. Um, and, and so it's really extraordinary to, to think that there's that this goes on and that both sides still can't coordinate. So in some cases, there is good coordination. In other cases, there isn't. Yeah, well, actually, that was leading to my next question, which was, who actually in the military, who owns the drones? Are they uh, an Air Force asset? Are they an Army asset? Who do they belong to? Or do, do they all have their own? Well, so, well, they, they, the answer is they all, they all have their own. Everyone's got drones now, and they all they all will. Um, some have very small drones, you know, like the drones you could basically fit in a pocket that are just used to, you know, you fly ahead of a 
of a tactical unit, you know, in an urban warfare setting and look around the corner to see what's there. Um, but the drones that we mostly talk about are predators and reapers, which are the armed ones that, that take the shots. There are air force, um, they are, they are air force, uh, weapons. Um, but the air force then sends them to the theaters where they're being used. And then they're owned by whichever forward commander is in charge of them, whether it's central command, which controls the Middle East, African command, which controls obviously Africa, their special operations command. Um, and so the drones are employed by all sorts of different military units. And, and it's only going to be getting, um, you know, uh, there's going to, they're going to be proliferating even more. And then, you know, as I've talked to people, you know, Air Force people still hate the term drones. They, they, they say they, they're angry because there actually are still pilots that are flying these things. And there's actual pilots who sit in chairs, obviously not on the ground. They're not in cockpits. They sit in chairs and they fly them. And they hate the term drone because it implies that, you know, it's purely a robot. You program something to do a mission. Um, but that is the direction we're going in. We're going into something where it's going to be purely drones. They are going to send drones on a mission without a pilot, program them to go, deliver a weapon, and then come back. We're not really there yet, but we will be in the future. Yeah. Uh, do you think you're ever going to get to a point where you allow the autonomy for the machine to even choose a target? Uh, you know what? I I I, th I think so. I mean, I think we're not a tech. I'm not a technologist, but but the people who I do talk to say, sure. You know, you're going to have um, a facial recognition software, which is programmed into you know the drones, um, uh, you know, technology, where they will look down on the ground. And um, they have a, a face programmed in, uh, and, and and once they recognize the face, they'll take a shot. I mean, it's a scary thought, but I don't really think we're that far, really, in the future. Yeah. No, no. It, it, honestly, it reminds me of the last Captain America movie so much. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there another layer of technology? We were talking about facial recognition, but is there another layer of the physical technology that's going to come? So, is there a, a, a drone two point zero? Uh, that's going to add um, another level of uh, well resources to the military and to the CIA beyond just uh, making them automatons. So, is there some other mechanism, some other drone type robot that they're going to that they're working on that's coming up on, on the books? It's a good question. Um, I, I don't know en enough about what's on the cutting edge of, of the technology other than to say that, you know, you talk to people and, I mean, there are going to be – there will be drones used for all, all, all sorts of things. It's not just combat. You will have drones that pick up um, soldiers on a battlefield and they're programmed to take them back to a hospital. And you'll have drones that, um, that do all manner of – of, of different um, military activities or intelligence gathering techniques, you know, it, it won't just be hovering over a compound in Pakistan and taking a shot. You will have, you know, small drones that are flying into a room uh, and and um, and and with a camera and being able to, or or or, or a microphone and be able to listen to someone's conversation, um, and then you know, the size of an insect. Um, there's, there's, there's that type of technology. So this is all stuff that, again, it seems like science fiction, but I, I don't think we're that far away. No. Amazon, Amazon is, is, is already announced they're going to deliver books uh, yes. by drones in the, in the near future. We have had um, some issues lately where private drone companies have been flying and ignoring the uh, rules of air traffic control. 
um, where they've just flown wherever they felt like and across the landing paths of planes and so forth. So uh, there's a lot that's going to be sorted out I know, in Australia just on the civil drones program, let alone the military one. But that actually is, is important because, once again, I think the, the legal side of all these issues is even a decade behind the technology side. And I used to teach a course in uh, military ethics and I've never been able to get my head around where the drones fit into the ancient, I would say, military ethics and military law that's been around for like at least 100 years on how these decisions are made, who can be targeted where, who's allowed to be killed and who is a combatant. How is that um, argument going in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, these are the these are the the, the arguments that that I mean, the United States we're still we are still wrestling with this. I mean, this is still uh, you know it's only been ten twelve years where we've where we've had to, to deal with this, and um, you, you know, again, um, as you say, there is not. Um, there's precedent in history. Every time there's a new, you know, technology introduced, they say um, that it makes things unfair or it changes the laws of war. You know, the the longbow in the Middle Ages, which allowed people to fire hundreds of yards away, seemed like it was a um, unchivalrous way to do battle because you didn't have to meet the person you were fighting or fight hand to hand. You know, there's advances in technology, and in many ways, drones are just another um, advance, but. I do think that the way that, um, as you said, with the authorities, it's, it's less the, the it's, 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 it's less the technology you use. It's whether, you know, you allow the American president to say, yes, this person in this far off land um, in a country that's where the United States is allied with, um, the, you know, that person can be killed. We now have the technology to reach out and, you know, kill people. Uh, thousands of miles away um, with a very precise weapon. I mean, precise compared to carpet bombing or nuclear weapons, right? Um, nothing, nothing is, is entirely without risk. But it, um, it, and and that's what we're wrestling with now is whether you know the president, whether a president um, should have this authority, and and in what circumstances should he use it? Yeah, yeah, because it raises those barriers of. Who are you at war with at any particular time and where does that executive versus congressional power, which is pretty much mirrored in most other Western countries as well, where does the line get drawn and who are you allowed to, as we said before, have an extrajudicial killing of? Uh, I know that there were some issues about um, uh, US citizens who'd been targets and we've had a couple of Australian uh, people who've been fighting in, uh, well, members of ISIS, quite frankly, who've been killed in recent strikes and what our role was, whether the Australian government was aware of this in advance and whether they'd authorised it. Um, so I don't think this argument's going to go away, do you? No. I mean, I think that, that you know, your country, my country, all these, you know, uh, countries have to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a different type of warfare in the sense that it's, um, it's intelligence-driven, it's driven by... Um, you know, it, it's not massed armies. Obviously, it's specific people inside countries. They might be um, citizens of any other country. And then um, once it's determined who, who, whose citizenship they have, then the question is, you know, can you kill them? And what right and by what authority you have to kill them? I mean, the United States, the first American that the United States knowingly went after and targeted and killed was Anwar Awlaki in Yemen in 2011. As I write about in the book, this was a really wrenching debate. Um, at the same time, 
Um, you know, Obama made it because he thought, you know, this person and the legal justification was that this person had in a way forfeited his right to due process and therefore deserved to die. Now, two weeks later, again, going back to this, you know, parallel wars in, in the Pentagon and the CIA, two weeks later, his 16 year old son was killed in Yemen by a military drone strike. And that was, by all accounts, not purposeful. It was accidental. But that was another American citizen, two American citizens killed within two weeks. One was on purpose and one was accidental. And, um, and, 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 and this is the sort of, these are sort of these thresholds that we cross in this very new kind of war. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much for the interview today too. But can I ask a final question? Where do you think this is all going to be going? Uh, as far as your own research, do you think you're going to continue to pursue this? I, I expect you're going to get a lot of additional material coming in over the next decade, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, uh, I, I, I remain uh, very interested in these in these issues. Uh, part of the problem with uh, you know this kind of history is um, still so much of it remains classified. So as things are declassified, you learn more. You know, no, you know, given the CIA's track record, it could be three, thirty, forty years before the history of the last ten years is declassified. So it's a long haul, but um, you know, as as I said, it's it's uh, so much of the history of this pure, uh, of the last twelve years is a secret history and it's a classified history, but but it, but it remains important to cover. So I think that uh, my fate is to continue trying yeah. to try to unearth some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you very very much for the interview today. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I actually would recommend this book to anyone who, like me, is taught a subject to military ethics because uh, I think the students would. Uh, not even know where to begin to solve some of the issues you raise in the book. So thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, and, and I hope and I hope students do keep debating this and, and discussing this because I think it's um, it's going to be important for a while. Great, thank you. We've been talking to Mark Mazzetti about his new book, The Way of the Night, a recent history of drone strikes by both the CIA and the American military. 